So go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. I think this is what, sermon number 5, and we're still in chapter 1. But there's 51 verses. Come on, give me a break. There's a lot of verses in this chapter, okay? Well, by the time John wrote this Gospel, the church was over 50 years old. To put the gospel writing of this, uh, this gospel into perspective, the church had existed for over 50 years. The gospel at this time, as we read the book of Acts, was making a tremendous impact on the Roman world. You got that? And so I got to think for a moment that many people who had heard the gospel and believed the gospel as a result of it going out, that's why I think because it was so new and so fresh, John said, I want to write this so that you would believe, you know, chapter 20. He gave the purpose of this. This is why it's the evangelistic gospel. And so the way John begins his letter would seem to indicate that many were asking the question, how did this begin? How did this church start? You know, where did it come from? So he begins and opens with an open and shut case of the deity, the incarnation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, 1 through 18. And now in verses 19 through 51, the apostle moves to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, this is the very inception. And so he begins with John the Baptist in verses 19 through 34. And then in our verses this morning, 35 through 51, John mentions the first, I want to call converts, the first disciples. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, because John's painting the picture from the very beginning of how this church started that he was writing to and writing the gospel for, got it to, to get out. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. I want to bring to your attention before we read these verses that this is a call to conversion. John records this. None of the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not record this. Okay? What do they record? Well, they record a call to ministry. For example, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 5, they use the term fishers of men. So what Jesus does, for, what John records is Jesus' call to conversion. What the synoptics record is their call to ministry. And then later on, even in Matthew 10 and Luke 6, there's a call to apostleship where there's all these disciples around him, and he chooses the four. But what John does here is he records the very beginning, their conversion. One must be born again. Here's the thing. How many people are in ministry and yet aren't saved? How many people are doing something in a local church, and yet they have no real understanding of the gospel? So this is why John writes this. He wants to make sure that it's the power of Christ that converts. And everything begins with conversion, with summing, someone coming to Christ. And we're going to see that in verses 35 through 51. So let's stand together and read these passages of Scripture. Verses 35 through 51. And I have no problem reading this large section because in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul encourages Timothy in the public reading of Scripture. And so I really want you to think, we're in worshiping right now, right? God's the audience. And what we're going to do at this moment is read this section of Scripture, and God's going to be listening in to us, read His Word publicly, because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? So let's read. 
Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And notice that's all John says about him. He goes on. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Well, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for moving John to write, to pen these perfect, holy words, divine words, a record of the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the call of the first disciples to follow after him. God, I pray that you would give us lessons, that we would be able to glean truths that we can walk by and, and live by as a result of spending time in this portion of your word. God, may your spirit take the living word of God and apply it to the children of God in our lives. And all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the outline is real simple. It revolves around two verses. Verse 35, and again the next day, and again verse 43, the next day. Actually, when you look at verses 19 through 51, there are four days involved. Last week, we looked at the first two days. So what's John saying? Here are the first four days of Jesus' ministry. I mean, right at the very beginning. And now this morning, we're going to look at the second of those, the, second, the third and fourth day of those four days. Excuse me. I get it right in my own brain. Now, I want to go ahead and, and just 
tell you the outline. Two points based on that. Number one, Andrew and Peter, verses 35 through 42. And you can guess who the next two are. It's going to be Philip and Nathaniel. Okay? Now, I know there are three mentioned in the first part. Okay? Look at verse uh, 37, 38. Two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, verse 37. And Jesus turned and saw them following. He said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Then Jesus responded, come, and you will see. Now look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak, that is John the Baptist speak, and follow him was Andrew. And we learn what Andrew went to do. He went and told Peter. Most commentators, by far most commentators, think that the other person was John himself, the John who wrote this gospel. Okay? But that's not the point. The point is that what does Andrew do? And we'll get to that in just a little bit. So let's back up. So I, want, I wanted to point out there's five involved here, but we're only going to look at four because the Scripture highlights those four. The, so the point number one is Andrew and Peter, and point number two is 45 through 51, Nathaniel and Philip. Nathaniel and Philip. Let's learn something here. Let's go on. Let's back up to verse 35. Again, the next day, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Okay? Standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked. Jesus was walking by, walking to, walking around, walking. And he said to those two disciples, Behold, there he is over there, the Lamb of God. There he is, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist was pointing him out. He already did that earlier the day before, right? In verse 34, he testified that this is the Son of God. So what we have earlier on, here's the sequence of events when you put all the Gospels together, is you have Jesus baptized, which is not recorded in the Gospel of John. Then from that baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And then all of a sudden, he comes back. And we see that in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? And now, all of a sudden, the next day, John the Baptist sees him again. And he's got his disciples with him. Now, now he had more than just two. We would learn that later on in chapter 3 and in other of the Gospels. But this time he had these two with him. And he looked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. In the Greek, it means they just immediately went and followed. Let me park there for a minute, because I want to point out something about John the Baptist's ministry that we need to learn. We'll come back to our text in just a minute. But right now, let me make a comment about John the Baptist himself, because he's not going to be mentioned again until chapter 3, verse 22. But I've got to say this. Notice, number one, that John the Baptist had disciples. This is the first time the word disciple is used in the gospel okay that means learner it refers to one who is attached or allegianced himself to somebody else okay they were attached to john the, they were a, they showed allegiance to john the baptist but notice what john the baptist had been preparing them for and teaching them about that is christ so that when christ appeared and he pointed, they immediately what? Went to Christ. Beloved, that is what all ministry is about. It's not about the minister. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the conference speaker. It's not about the book writer. It's not about the person. It's always about Christ. And John the Baptist is the premier example of this, isn't he? He had to let go. 
He's losing his congregation. You see, it was his mission to point men to Christ. It was his mission to point men and women to Jesus. So when John tells them, the Lamb of God, look at the immediate response of verse 37, they went. How? Why? Because John had been spending weeks and months preparing them for this. Do we prepare people for the coming of Christ? Because he's coming again. You see, just as John the Baptist was preparing people for the first coming of Christ, beloved, we need to be telling people and preparing them for the second coming of Christ. And unless they know Christ, they will not be ready. True gospel ministry never brings attention to the minister, but to Christ. The church leader, the elder, the preacher, the messenger will always work diligently to make sure that all things are centered on Christ. I really have a hard time with any man who names a ministry after himself and calls it a gospel ministry. I have a major problem with that. I don't see John doing this here. I don't see any of the apostles. Paul never did it. Right? You never see that once in the book of Acts. Well, that was my, I can relax now and go forward. But I just, I, I see that in the life of John the Baptist. What a, what a humble attitude, what a humble man. When Christ came by, his disciples, his disciples were ready because they were really Jesus' disciples. Parents, isn't that what we do? Are our children ready for when Christ comes? Are, 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 are we about the business and the mission of John the Baptist and, and, and proclaiming the greatness of Christ and looking and praying for opportunities to share him? Even though we get nervous, even though we're shy, even though it's difficult, even though I think I'm going to mess up, what if they ask a question I can't answer? I don't try to, well, so what? Say, you know, I don't know, that's a good question, but here's my point. Let me tell you something in evangelism, Okay. Whenever you're sharing Christ, that person, nine times out of ten, will always ask questions for rabbit trails. Your job is to bring them back to Christ. Bring them back to the gospel. Once they come and submit to Christ, then they begin that lifelong journey of getting biblical answers to those questions they've had. The bottom line is this. You're a sinner, and you need the Savior. Right? I think we got to begin, with, and you're going to see this really unfold throughout the Gospel of John with the disciples in particular. So let's go on. Let's go back to verses, let's go on to 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39, they approach Jesus. He turns and asks them, what do you seek? He asked them that. They said, and they really don't, I like it when people don't really answer the question correctly. They're kind of saying something else. Look, look, look at this. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Where, where are you staying? Now, I pondered that and I searched it. I'm thinking, okay, if I'm, well, here, here's the point. And there's going to be a, little, a lot of lessons woven throughout this morning, okay, as we walk away through these verses. Here is a, here's, we just had one with John the Baptist. Here's another one. 
When he says, where are you staying? When they ask that, it implies that they wanted to spend an amount of time with Jesus. Whatever was on their mind and heart, whatever they were thinking, they weren't just looking for a two-minute or five-minute or ten-minute conversation. What they wanted could not be settled in a matter of minutes. It was too important for them. So they said, where are you staying? I.e., what what's on our heart, we want to spend time with you. We need answers, and, and it's going to take some time. They were looking for a long walk, not a short one. At this point, John Calvin writes this. In his, in, in, he calls out those who are merely looking for, uh, uh, looking for a mere seconds with Jesus, a mere, mere passing or a quick look or a quick glance at Christ, which many people do today. They think that that's all they need. He writes this, for there are very many who merely sniff at the gospel from a distance and thus let Christ suddenly disappear. And whatever they have learned about him slips away. End of quote. And I added my own two cents. Today we would call that drive-through Christianity. There actually are churches that are kind of like drive-through. I saw one in Florida years ago. It's crazy. You know, we want the quick fix. We don't want to sit and sup. We don't want to sit and soak. We, we live in a microwave, McDonald's drive through whatever drive through it is, that's just one to pop in my mind, right? I mean, it's, it's, we want it quick. We want it fast. You know, we don't want to pay the price for a meal that takes time to eat as well as prepare. You get the analogy? Give me something that takes you two seconds to prepare and I could eat it in five. Instead of and the cook's in the kitchen for a long time, and it's going to take us three or four courses to eat this meal. So we're going to come to sit and soak and to enjoy. That's been lost in Christianity today. Today we have this kind of a drive-through Christianity. 20 minutes of a topical sermon, 15, it makes me feel good about myself so I can get on with the rest of my week. Hmm. A lot of people say, and I've had to deal with this myself, well, there's people today only have a 15, 20-minute attention span. Well, good, my job's to increase it. Or how about this? How about this? If you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you, and he gives which if you're born again, you do have him, he's given you the mind of Christ, He's given you a hunger and thirst for his word. He's given you a hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Then you're going to want to sit down and spend more time because that is something that is evidence of the presence of the spirit in your life. You're not going to be satisfied with the McDonald's quick meal. With a meal that only took a few minutes to get ready. You want the filet mignon. And you want to cook just right now. I'm getting you ready for the picnic, aren't I? So it ain't gonna be, it's going to be hot dogs. But anyway, okay, I'll go on. I don't want to beat that one to death. Let's go on to verse 39. And Jesus invites him and says, come and you will see. 
Now, I know I'm pretty much on with the context here and not just ad-libbing because of the word stay means to continue, to remain, abide. It's the same word he uses in John 15, 4 through 7 when he talks about abiding in the vine, the branches, remain. So Jesus says, come with me and I want you to remain with me. And this happened around 4 p.m. in the afternoon and they stayed all night long till the next day. So they had great conversation, great fellowship with Christ. excuse me, verses 40 through 42, Andrew promptly tells his brother, look at this, as we go on in this story, this narrative, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. I think the other one was most likely John, the gospel writer himself, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And now John mentions this because Simon Peter was pretty famous 50 years later when this was written, okay, for the church. So that's why I went ahead and mentioned him. In, in verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. In the old, it means anointed one. Anointed one, the chosen of God. It's him. He's the, he is the anointed, just like the anointing over the priests and the kings in, in, the, in the Old Testament. This is the anointed one, the one identified as the chosen one of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior. He is the Christ. Now, many people struggle at this point, and here's why. In the other three Gospels, when you read through them, you see that these disciples from, from really the very beginning really struggle with their faith, and sometimes you wonder if they weren't saved till after the resurrection because they really struggle. I mean, at the end of John, you're going to have doubting Thomas. you got Peter denying through. They're nervous, you know, and they and they're get scared. And, and so you wonder what's going on here. Uh, but this should not be too difficult for us to understand because people often use terms properly without the full understanding of what they mean or their implications, and you and I are no different. For example, when you first started to use the word Lord in reference to Jesus, did you have the full implications at that moment what it meant? No. Did you even have the full meaning? You had the base meaning. You had the regular, a basic. But as you began to grow in Christ, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that term Lord begins to fill itself out more and more and more. You grow in understanding of what these terms mean. Same thing with Messiah. Right? We've got to understand this if we're called to disciple others. Right? I'm still learning today what it means Jesus is Lord. I've got it mentally down, but the implications of it, I still don't have all quite, I want to have it down. I've got it down a whole lot more now than I did 30 years ago. But when I first used that term, I didn't understand its full-blown meaning and understanding and implication for my life. Neither did you. So what we have here is is. Andrew telling Peter, we have found the Messiah. He's got the basic understanding here, but I think even as he used this word, he didn't understand the full implications of that word, though he did have a, he did have an understanding that this is the one who the Old Testament was talking about. Might not understand all the implications of it, but I'm on my journey now. Conversion is what I'm saying. MacArthur looks at this text as conversion. 
as opposed to a call to ministry. This is a call to follow. This is a call to salvation. We know this because this is John's overall purpose of his book in chapter 20. I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And here we see belief as its very conception, so to speak, in the heart of Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. What we witness from this point on, from their conversion onward, is an increased development in their understanding and significance for their lives that this term has. You see, God reveals truth to you. Let me kind of fill this out a little bit more. God reveals truth to us, right? He's given us the mind of Christ, and there are times in your life you look at a passage and you go, whoa, I didn't know that. That is awesome. You know, and God gives you an increase in understanding. Uh, You shared that with me, Edward, early on in your your conversion where you were reading John chapter 1. And all of a sudden you were like, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is God. I didn't really understand that. Boom. And you went and told somebody and later on found out he was a Jehovah Witness. But it was like, it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit just unblinded you. You know, you you saw that and you began to to understand the implications for that more and more and more. It began to fill in for you as you studied God's word. See, God reveals truth to us. It's like seeing the picture on a on a, on a puzzle box, you get a box with a puzzle inside, and you see the picture, you see what it looks like, but once you umped it, once you put it down on the table, you got all these pieces, you don't see how it all fits together, do you? See what's going to happen with the disciples, what happens with us, is once we understand that Jesus is Lord, we understand that Jesus is the Messiah, we understand that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we understand that he's the King of Israel, these pieces begin to be put together for us. It's called the Christian journey. Let me give you another illustration to help us out with this. It's like looking at a diamond. Okay? You get a magnifying glass and you get it out and you get this diamond and you look at it through the magnifying glass. You see all these different cuts. Right? On a diamond. It could be five, it could be ten, just whatever. But each one of those cuts represents an aspect of that diamond. All these titles... It's like each one of these, when we, it's like when all these titles, it looks like lifting up Jesus as he's a diamond and looking at all these different cuts. And each one of these cuts represents even one of these statements about him, Messiah, Lamb of God, King of Israel, are, are, are teaching us about a certain aspect of who he is and what he's done, right? Except Jesus is infinitely worth more than a diamond. Let me just show you this in the text here. Look at verse 36. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. There's a title. There's a, there's a cut of that diamond there. He's the Lamb of God. Here, here's another one in verse 41. We just read it. Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Here's another one in verse 45. Listen to this. Philip will tell Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's another cut. This is the one that the law and the prophets point to. And then finally, look at Nathaniel. Look at verse 49. He says, Rabbi, you are, he says, you are the son of God, referring to his humanness and his suffering. And then look at that. You are the king of Israel. It was like five or six statements right here about Christ in this one section, all teaching us a different aspect of who this Jesus is. That's what John is doing here. 
He's convincing us that this Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the one that the law and the prophets in the Old, point, Old Testament point to. He, he is, verse 49, the Son of God. And He is the King of Israel. He's all these things. That's what John is doing. In chapter 1, he's holding up the Son of God. He's holding up Jesus Christ and he's saying, as a diamond. And he's saying, look at all the cuts. Look at all these terms are used to describe his beauty and his glory. That's what John does to open up his gospel in these first 51 verses. How beautiful is that? Let's go on to verses 43 through 51. Philip and Nathaniel. Philip and Nathaniel. We have the next day in verse 43. He purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. Notice this time Jesus found Philip. I love this because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that we do not seek after God. God seeks after us. God was sought after. God used John the Baptist to seek after Andrew. And, and used Andrew to seek after Peter. And now we have Jesus specifically finding Philip. What does it mean to be found? It means you were looking for somebody. You get the point here? I love this. Let's look at Philip for a minute because he's not very well known, is he? We don't know much about him. As a matter of fact, you look at the other three Gospels, he's just mentioned in the list of the disciples. Nothing's really said about him. John gives us a tiny bit more information for example, in chapter 6, verse 7, he records, excuse me, Philip is saying that they didn't have enough food to feed the people in the feeding of the 5,000. It was Philip who spoke up, we don't have enough. Okay, that's all it said. In chapter 12, verse 12, the Greeks came to Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. He didn't know what to do. So he went to ask Andrew. That's all there is there. It's a little, little, a little conversation there. And in chapter 14, verse 8, He's the one that requested of Jesus, show us the Father. Here's a couple things we glean from Philip. Number one, he was unsure. He seemed to really come across. He's not like Peter. You talk about different personalities. You got Peter over here, and then you got this guy, Philip. Not only was he unsure, but he never took initiative. When the Greeks came to him and said, we want to talk to Jesus, he didn't say, okay, let me go get him. He went to Andrew and say, what do I do? What do we do? Why don't you talk to him? He's unsure, and he didn't take initiative. Now, I look at that, and I go, wait a minute. This is tremendously encouraging, and here's why. Two reasons. Number one, it reflects that Jesus went out of his way to seek after Philip, the one who would not take initiative. See, it's always God taking the initiative. And here's number two. God is not safe based upon one's personality or ability. When we get to heaven, we're going to look around at the thousands, the myriads and the myriads of children of God who have been born again. And as we look around, we're going to see, and we're going to be going, wow, as I look around at all these thousands of people, my brothers and sisters in heaven, I look and I cannot see any one human quality or characteristic that really brings us together, that we have in common that God said, oh, I'll save him because of that. Because he was this way or she was that way. 
He looked this way. She looked that way. He had this kind of personality. He was a go-getter, but he was quiet. Introvert, extrovert. When you get to heaven, none of those things, the evidence is going to be, none of those things matter to God. The evidence is going to be it's all of grace, that God is a merciful God and he chooses who he wills. That's what heaven is going to show, that nothing is based on human ability or merit or character. Isn't that encouraging? That's why James says there's no partiality with God. God shows no favor. When you line up all the saved people in the world, you can see that well, there's no favor in that. They're all so different. There's, there's no human quality that, that grabbed God's attention. It's just not there because everybody's so different. What encouragement. Well, that person is more outgoing than that person. It's the way it is. It's not a right or wrong. We're called to love. You see, what God's showing is he loves people because he loves. Not because they were lovable. They're all different. It shows that God is the one. He loves based upon his character. He doesn't love based upon our character. His love is grounded in his character. And his love is holy. His love is unconditional. There were no conditions. What was on this? When you look at heaven, you're not going to be, oh, it was conditioned upon this human trait. No. He went out of his way to save an ordinary Philip, an ordinary guy. He sought after him, got him. Knowing that, listen, listen to me, listen. Knowing that, what keeps us from seeking and going after people who are ordinary, an ordinary sinner who's struggling with a sin? What keeps us from doing that? According to this text, nothing should keep us from doing that, from taking the initiative and going out. But I'm shy. Go one-on-one. You know, I, I believe it or not, sometimes I get that way. I know it's hard for you all to think that. But I, my, my God, if I really love you, then I want you to put a love in my heart for whoever, for all these folks. And I want that is, I want the, your love for me to propel me to share the gospel with others. It's pretty simple. Let's go on. Let's go on. So he finds Nathaniel. Philip does in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel. <laughs> he got over his shyness a little bit. He took initiative here. What was the change, Christ? <laughs> Christ, the love of Christ changed. He, he was beginning to be he was being converted, changed. And notice a pattern going on here. When someone comes to Christ, they go and tell their friends. Got a pattern going on here. When one comes to the Savior, one sees Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, they can't help but go tell their friends. Amen? Now, I love verse 46. Verse 46, the question to Philip, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? Well, I, I looked, and there really wasn't anything infamous about Nazareth. Nothing really bad about it. Uh, I think there could have been some small-town rivalry going on, like Concord and Canapolis. And maybe that's why uh, who, who, Nathaniel responded that way to Philip. Uh, Nathaniel might have been from Canapolis. Oh, how about, how about Durham and Chapel Hill? That's a good, another good illustration. Okay? 
It, it, it's like if, if someone from Durham went to someone in Chapel Hill and said, hey, we got the, this guy named Jesus here. He, 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 <laughs> uh, the one that the law and the prophets pointed to, and then the guy from Chapel Hill goes, what good thing comes out of Durham? You're a Duke fan, you know, that kind of a thing. That was only in case I was falling asleep. I got your attention now, which no one is anyway. But I see that's what's going on here. And most likely you read this and Nathaniel was from, looks like he was from Cana. And so rivalry with Nazareth, which was nearby. In any case, he was skeptical. But I love the response because he never, Philip never had any answers for him. So what does he say? What does he say? Come and see. End of verse 46. I, I, I can't explain that. But you come and see. You come and see. How do we do that today? How do we do that today? What do you mean if, we, if we're witnessing to somebody and we say, you come and see? How about you come and see my life? Jesus is in the right hand of the Father. He's not on earth anywhere. That's where he is. But his church is here on earth. So if you want to come see Jesus, you come see his church. Why don't you come see us love on one another? If you want to get an idea, if you want to have an example, if you want an illustration, if you want a hint of who this Jesus is, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see how we love one another and how we can love on you? Why don't you come and see? Can churches say that? Verse 47, Nathanael comes to Jesus and said to him, and Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What he's saying by that is that you are a practicing Jew, basically. You're practicing your Jewishness. Okay? You're not fake. Okay? Deceit, there's the word in verse 47. Behold, an Israelite indeed of whom there is no deceit. You honestly are pursuing, okay, the Old Testament. And, and that kind of fits in verse 48 and 49. Listen to this. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know I'm that way? How do you know this? Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. A fig tree, as you follow that through the New Testament, even the Old Testament, was a sign of rest. And oftentimes a sign of meditation. He could have been meditating on an Old Testament scripture under the tree. But the point of this is Jesus was nowhere around. He's asserting his deity right here. And that shocks him. It shocks Nathaniel. And so with Philip's witness and also Jesus speaking to him, Nathaniel in verse 49 answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Focus on that for a minute. What is he saying, particularly with the king of Israel? Earlier on, a few verses earlier, he was identified as being an Israelite. And now this Israelite called Nathaniel is saying, you are my king. Submission. Here's some of the first fruits of conversion. You want to go tell your friends who Jesus is. You want to tell them that he can forgive them of their sins too. But here's another one. You submit to his kingship, his authority. Or you at least begin to understand that a little bit and begin to grow in that. Beloved, listen, that's why discipleship is vitally important. And without it, churches crumble. Without it, we can no longer discern who is saved and who is not. Without discipleship, 
the church blends right into its culture. And we lose our saltiness. The light is diminished. There's no longer a difference. And I love how he verses 50 and 51, and we'll just go into communion with this. Verse 50, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree you believe, you will see greater things than these. I think verse 50, he's referring to the rest of what Jesus is going to do in his ministry. You're going to see greater things. It'll start in chapter 2 with turning water into wine, and he's going to go on from there. To the ascension, verse 51. So, beloved, those are some lessons we can learn out of this long narrative this morning. But I want us to focus in as we go into communion on focusing on that diamond who Christ is. Those different cuts, those different titles that are given to him. Here they are again. Behold the Lamb of God. So as you take partake of communion, you're beholding the Lamb of God who because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, takes away the sins of the world. Your sin in particular Number two, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen of the Father to bear our sins. And then he is also the one that the Old Testament points to, both the law and the prophets. And then finally, he is the Son of Man, referring to his humanness, referring to his suffering. And he is the King of Israel, the one who is coming again, the one who will take on and occupy his rightful throne in Jerusalem, and will literally, physically rule on this earth again to fulfill all and the rest of Scripture that remains to be fulfilled. There will not be one dot left unfilled. Amen? Amen. So when we take communion, you remind yourselves that we're just holding up the Son of God and looking at Him like a diamond and looking at the various aspects of who he is, his work, and his person. I'd like to ask the men who are distributing the elements to come forward at this time. As you are doing that, well, if, you wanna, if, you, if, if there's a passage of Scripture, you want to read through this as the elements are being passed, it's a quiet time. And quiet is good. Okay? People are like, oh, i got to have noise. No. It's a time to think and to meditate. Open up to a passage of Scripture that maybe you've been in this week or the one we've been in this morning and read over it. Or if God has convicted you of something else, be in the Word during this time as the men are handing out the elements. And again, if there's anything in our lives, if there's a relationship that is not right with somebody else, it is more important to God that you get that right than it is that you would partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. So, let's do that. Amen.